Welcome back to Red Letter Challenge Week 3. Uh, depending on when you started with your group or maybe alone, uh, you're probably somewhere between day 9 and 14. And over the last week, you've been spending time in being uh, and what it means to be in the presence of God. And remember, we spoke last week about the importance of being because any doing has to flow out of our being. Uh, Jesus will invite us, Jesus will command us, Jesus will call us to go and to go and do, but it always flows out of us spending time with him and being with him. So I hope this past week you've had some really incredible times and some really powerful times of just practicing some spiritual disciplines, Uh, maybe even some spiritual disciplines you haven't yet practiced, Uh, and maybe they've kind of taken you to that place or put you in that place where you're becoming aware of the presence of God. And now as we focus on how to move on from being and and where does that take us to in terms of going and doing, well, what does that look like for us? Uh, You might notice I'm sitting on on quite a beautiful couch. Uh, I have no doubt many of you watching today are sitting on a couch at home. Uh, You know, we have them, they're comfortable, we enjoy them, we have people over and they sit on our beautiful couches. But our couches hide a dirty secret. Uh, And I'm wondering if even as you sit there on your couch, uh, maybe are you brave enough to take your hand and kind of squeeze it down the side? Oh, oh, man, what on earth? You You stick it down the side and you start to realize maybe this couch isn't as cracked up as what I thought it is. You know, this couch is an excellent metaphor. It's a metaphor for you and I. You know, we might look beautiful on the outside, but what's really under the surface? What's in those seams and those cracks that we can't see? I'll tell you what, why don't, we, why don't we have some fun? Why don't we have a look at what's under the couch? And if you want to do this at home, hey, you're welcome to do that. But let's have a look at what is under the seat on our couch over here. What, what have we got uh, well, I'm, I'm hesitant to do this. Okay, let's have a look. What is under this? Oh, oh my goodness. I mean, how does a can, an iced tea, and we've got some toys, we've got some half-eaten, there's a, a bag of potato chips, a sweet wrapper, oh, a toonie. Well, okay, I'll keep that. Uh, there's a sucker, a, a pen, Okay, church pen, I guess I can keep that as well. But there's just all sorts of garbage. Okay, so if you did that at home, I would love to know what you found under your seats. Isn't it amazing how it doesn't matter what the couch looks like, there's always like some Cheerios or Cheetos, some half-sucked sweet, maybe a dog chew toy. Uh, There's just junk, there's garbage under there. And so many of us, we live our lives in the same way. We think we've got it together because we look good. But yet under the surface, there's this hideous filth, there's this garbage. And you know, the sad reality is so many of us come into church and people will visit a church and they'll look at people and look at families in a church and go, oh, they've just got it all together and they, they look so perfect. They, they clearly don't understand what it's like to be me. 
or, or many of us, we come into church and we live like politicians, or we practice like a politician. And what I mean by that is we have a great big grin, we shake everyone's hands, we kiss a couple of babies, and everything looks perfect. You know, I'm reminded of Casting Crowns, who sang a song many years ago called Stained Glass Masquerade. Uh, and, and how so many of us, we come in and, and there's this image of shiny plastic people underneath a shiny plastic steeple, and when in reality, there's garbage. And the beauty of this week as we go into the Red Letter Challenge is we're going to discover that Jesus knows this about us. There's nothing hidden under your seat cushion that Jesus doesn't know about. And yet Jesus still invites us into relationship with him. Jesus still offers us life and forgiveness. Jesus still loves us. Jesus knows the garbage, yet he loves and he forgives. And as we go into week three, this week of forgiving, that's the theme, that's the challenge, that's the reminder, and that's the beauty of it, is that we're forgiven in Christ. You know, there's this incredible scene of forgiveness in John chapter 8. Uh, and it's just such a powerful illustration, such a powerful picture. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to check this out yourselves. But in John chapter 8, verses 1 uh, and onwards, it's this image. Uh, and some of our Bibles, you might kind of see a little heading above it saying that some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this eyewitness account, but others do. And, and so we believe this is part of the Word of God. This is part of Scripture. This is the image uh, of Christ. And so we read in John chapter 8, reading on from verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, uh, and at dawn he appeared. So this is the night before Jesus goes off to the mountain, and we know that it's Jesus' custom to pray, and so he's gone off and he's praying, and he's spending time with his heavenly Father. He's spending time being, as we've done over this last week. And in verse 2, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now we've got to pause there. You know, it, it's, it takes two people to commit adultery. Now these Pharisees, they've only brought one person. And although the text doesn't kind of show it, you have this image of here's a woman caught in the act. You wonder if she wasn't set up, if maybe they paid off somebody to create the scene. And so she's dragged before Jesus. At best, she's got a sheet or maybe just an outer coat strapped around her to kind of try and reclaim some sense of dignity. And of course, the Pharisees, they don't care about her as a person. Uh, they're using her as a means to an end. They want to test Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. And so they say, it says, they made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? And we read in verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Because they know 
The law says we should stone such a woman. Adultery uh, is worthy of being stoned. And so, Jesus, what do you say? And they're pretty sure that they know what Jesus is going to say. They think Jesus is going to say, no, we, we shouldn't stone her because that's how he's been preaching. And he seems to be kind of sensitive and he's compassionate and he cares for people. Uh, and so if he says that, well, then we can write him off because he's clearly not teaching the law. But we also know that if he affirms and agrees that the law says we should stone her, well, then we can write him off because everything else he does doesn't conform to that. And they think they've got him. They think we've got him trapped. What's he going to do? And as this woman stands there trying to cover her shame, but Jesus doesn't immediately answer the question. You know, Jesus is sitting down. He's teaching. And then in verse 6, after we read of this as a trap, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I love that scene. You know, you and I might think Jesus is doing this to avoid the question. Maybe, you know, he's leaning over and he's doodling in the sand, hoping the problem will just go away. You and I do that all the time. Maybe if I close my eyes, that problem will go. And so Jesus is kind of doodling in the sand, drawing, writing, whatever it is. And, you know, people have have wondered for, for centuries, what on earth did Jesus write in the sand? And we don't know. You know was, he, was he writing a verse, perhaps? Was he writing people's names? Was he maybe recording people's sins? I have no idea. But he's just quietly dawdling and doodling in the sand. And then in verse 7, we read, when they kept on questioning him. <laughs> I love that. They're like, wait, this is, what, what's going on? Uh, we've asked you a question, Jesus, why aren't you answering? And, and it's taking too long, and, and it moves past that awkward moment. So they're like, no, we want an answer. So they press him. So Jesus straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. What a powerful answer. Jesus doesn't talk about the law. Jesus doesn't talk about her. Jesus responds to the crowd and goes, I know what the law says, but I have mercy. And so, okay, if you have no sin, you want to stone the sinners, you want to stone those who've broken the law. If you have no sin, well then go ahead and cast the stone. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. And I love how John points that out. It's kind of this crowd of youth all the way through to older people. And, and as they, they're now contemplating, okay, if you have no sin, go ahead and throw the stone. And maybe those who are older are well aware of how fickle they are. And how fallible they are. You know, it's, it's those youngsters who think they've got it all together, who think they have all the right answers. And as we grow and as we mature, we start to realize we don't know a whole lot about anything. And maybe as we mature and as we get older, we start to take a more sober assessment of ourselves. And so these older people standing around there realize, well, I can't throw a stone. I may not have committed adultery, but you know what? I know I've sinned elsewhere. Uh, 
I know I've done the wrong thing. I might not be like this person, but in a sense, I'm just like this person. And I do not, and I cannot throw that stone. And so the crowd goes away until only Jesus is left with the woman still standing there. And then in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Just imagine that scene. This woman is still standing there. She, she's kind of expecting she's about to die. She's about to be stoned. And slowly stones get dropped in the ground and the crowd disperses. And we don't know how long she stood in silence as Jesus kept writing and, and almost kind of just ignored what was going on. Only he wasn't ignoring. He knew exactly what was taking place. And, and eventually Jesus sits up and he looks at the woman. And he says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Have they all left? And she replies, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And it's this powerful picture, this incredible illustration of Jesus offering this forgiveness. Here's someone caught in a sin, brought before this Temple court, in a sense, this temple community who could now practice and exercise judgment. And she's brought there, fully convinced she's about to be executed. Yet she finds life. She finds forgiveness. There's no condemnation. You know, so many of us know John 3:16 so well. That famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's Satan who wants to kill us. It's Satan who wants to see us die in our sins, not Jesus. He hasn't come to kill us. He's come to give us life because God so loves us that God lays down his own life for us. You know, we might know John 3, 16 so well, but I wonder if you've ever read John 3, 17, the very next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, Jesus knows what's under the cushion and under the couch. Jesus knows the garbage in our hearts. Jesus knows that sin. That adultery, that lust, that pride, that gluttony, that sin that you've tried to hide for so long, Jesus knows it's there. Yet Jesus offers us forgiveness and offers us life. The naysayers, those who, who would seek to condemn, Satan himself who stands as an accuser against us, is forced to drop the stone and leave. You know, I don't know if you've ever ended up in a, a courtroom environment. You know, once when I was a teenager, I did something really stupid. And uh, I got caught by the police for it. I ended up spending a night in jail. Uh, and outside of that or kind of coming out of jail, I had to go and stand before a judge in a courtroom as he would determine the punishment that my crime kind of required. And I remember going into this, and our family had a lawyer who kind of acted on our behalf. And I remember the lawyer sort of saying and reminding me, you don't need to say anything. Let me do the talking on your behalf. 
And I remember as the scared teenager being in this courtroom and the people all around and the judge comes in and, and the lawyer's standing just off to the side and the judge kind of asks some questions and, and sure enough, I didn't respond. I didn't need to respond to anything because the lawyer spoke on my behalf. And as he spoke and as the proceedings took place, I was let off in terms of not having to be punished to the full extent of the law. Yes, yeah, sure, I ended up doing a little bit of community service, but this lawyer speaking on my behalf was able to make sure that it wasn't as heavy as the penalty required. You know, you and I have an advocate. You and I have someone standing in, in the courtroom of God for want of a better illustrational picture. This is what the scripture says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You, know, you and I are, are called by Christ to leave our life of sin. But the reality is you and I stumble and fall over and over and over again. And in those moments when we stumble and fall, we have an advocate who speaks on our behalf. We have an advocate who reminds our Heavenly Father we are in Christ. Therefore, we are not standing condemned. We are not condemned. We have life. We have eternal life. Jesus comes to offer forgiveness. And Jesus offers forgiveness to those who know they need forgiveness. You know, as I close off this morning, as we go into this week of forgiveness, I want to remind you, many of us, even those in church, and those of us who sometimes like to put on that facade or that veneer that we've got it all together, maybe we've bought into the, the lie that you know, we think Jesus came to make bad people good. Now let me tell you, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. The Bible's very clear, those who were dead in their sins. You and I aren't just basically bad people. Outside of Christ, we're dead in our sin. We're dead. Yet Jesus comes to make us alive. He offers eternal life. How? By offering forgiveness for our sins. And all we need to do is receive and accept that forgiveness and to turn to Christ and say, Jesus, yes, I accept you. You will be my advocate, and he will. And as you go into this week of the Red Letter Challenge, as you come again in front of this idea of forgiveness, as, as your eyes are open to this picture of forgiveness, my prayer is that you would truly see how forgiven you are in Christ. But this is when it's going to become challenging going out because we're going to discover that as we receive forgiveness, just as we have been forgiven, so too we need to go out and offer forgiveness. Now I guarantee there's somebody that has hurt you, that has offended you, that has done something against you that, that hurts and, and cuts deep. And just as we have been forgiven of the garbage under our cushions, so too we need to go and practice forgiveness. And we can do so. Because the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, bled and died on a cross 
so that you and I might not die, but have eternal life. And as we close off this morning, we're going to share in communion. If you don't have the elements of bread or juice with you, go ahead and push pause right now and go and get those elements. If you don't have bread or juice, find some other symbol of the body and blood of Christ. Get those and let us pray and let us share in communion together. As we move into a time of communion, we do this because we believe Jesus invites us and indeed instructs us to do this. When Jesus shared his final meal with his disciples that is recorded for us in the Gospels, uh, he said to them, do this often in remembrance of me. And I think part of why Jesus says we need to do this often is because we're so forgetful. We forget about the mercy and the forgiveness on offer in Christ. We forget that we don't strive, we don't earn salvation, we don't do. We're not good enough to merit salvation. Yet we will still try. It's our human nature because we want to be in control of it. And so Jesus says, no, do this often in remembrance of me to remind yourself there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. Do this often in remembrance of me to remind yourself that I have done it all on the cross. And so when Jesus offers his body for us and when Jesus offers his blood for us, this is where we find forgiveness and life. And as you have the symbol of the bread, whatever it may be, I would invite you right now to take that symbol, that image and illustration and, and break it. And be reminded of Christ's body given for us. As he had the nails through his wrists and feet, the spear in his side, the crown of thorns on his head, as his body was given over for us, so we find life in it. And as you take that symbol, the bread or cracker or whatever you have, maybe spend a moment in quiet reflection and spend a moment in confession and again crying out for forgiveness. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that God incarnate, the maker of heaven and earth, you stepped into creation, you walked among your people, and you came with a purpose, and that purpose was to redeem us and restore us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for us. And again, we confess not only our sin, but we confess our dependence on you. And we thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. Take and eat. We read in the gospel in the same way that Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples. So too he took the cup. And as he took that cup, he changed the wording of the Passover meal. And he said to his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant, written in my blood. Meaning that the sacrifices that had gone before are now over. 
There is only one final sacrifice necessary. And it will be in the blood of Christ. And so together we take this cup. And we drink with thanksgiving and rejoicing. Because we drink with an awareness that we have life forevermore in Christ. Oh Jesus, we thank you for your blood. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son. But allowed him to offer his life. For us. And Jesus, as we receive your forgiveness, as we drink the symbol of your life poured out, we are reminded that there are many who have wronged us. And there are many whom we need to forgive. And we know for many of us this is not easy because of the pain and the hurt and what they've done to us. Jesus, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to forgive even as we have been forgiven. Let us take and drink together. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift of grace. As you go out into this coming week, my prayer is that you would once again discover forgiveness in Jesus Christ and you would walk in a new awareness and a a new step almost in that forgiveness, and that in the same vein you would learn to offer forgiveness. May the Lord bless you in this coming week. Amen.